Welcome everyone to the Eva Health Podcast, Season 2. My name's Erin, I'll be your host this season where we explore health information technology topics and our solution, Eva. So without any further ado, let's get this episode started. We're going to talk about what it means to be a courageous leader in healthcare today. And before we start this podcast, I was thinking, what's a creative way to explore this idea, right? So Dr. J talks about this a bunch today, but what does courageous mean and what does it mean to be a leader? I decided to ask my eight-year-old, what does it mean to be courageous or have courage? What does it mean to be a leader or what does leadership mean? Sierra, do you want to be on my podcast? Yes. Okay. Courageous to me means like a brave person that's not afraid to do any hard things or challenging things. They go through the hard stuff and they beat the hard stuff. What about leader? What does leader or leadership mean to you? Um, someone that is an example for someone that is afraid. A leader that shows you how to line up at school or something. So the other people that aren't doing it right, they see, oh, they're a leader. That's what we should do. I think that's a great definition, Sierra. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. <laughs> All right, let's dive right in. Hello, Dr. J. Hi, Erin. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I uh, had a good morning getting ready for our podcast and prepping and thinking about what courage is and what leadership is and then what they mean together, courageous leadership and how we so desperately need it in medicine right now and how our professional organizations have failed us incredibly badly and they are um, entirely in lockstep with um, government edicts and the narrative that um, does not support patient care or doctor care or provider care or the people who actually run the system are being trounced by administrative burdens and the mess and the solution is not going to come from the top. It's not going to come from uh, unionizing. It's not going to come from government lobbying. When you beg the government, please don't cut my pay that much this year, it's not going to work. And our professional organizations, that seems to be their focus, is we're going to just beg to not be punished as badly and we'll still hold on to the narrative that, you know, the government needs to run medical care and that's just insanity and it's not working. And as you and I were discussing earlier, the system is showing every sign of falling apart, like acutely falling apart. I'm seeing things I've never seen in my career before and patients who are being discharged from the hospital too fast and people who are leaving the ER with the wrong diagnosis and and we're, we're left to pick up the pieces in the uh, primary care world, which we're able to do because of the systems we have in place and most doctors aren't. They don't have the bandwidth, they don't have the business structure, they don't have the payment model that's gonna work for them. So I'm thinking today we should talk about not only courageous leadership, but where we should go. I mean, you can't lead somewhere if you don't know where you're going. And um, I think we need to go to really acknowledge that independent practice is uh, the solution to having a great doctor-patient or provider-patient relationship. And in a huge integrated system with 50 doctors or 100 doctors and 
you're seeing the system instead of a doctor, that's not going to work. Quality care drops dramatically. It's been shown um, all of the outcome-based medicine projects that have been done don't work. The quality drops, the price goes up. The only thing that works, the ancient path, the doctor and the patient now, because, and I'm, I'm for it, despite what the medical organization may say, providers, extenders, nurse practitioners, PAs, we need them badly. We don't have enough. We need them trained well. We need them to have systems that provide them with the support they need to do a really good job. But the idea that we're going to turf battle over primary care is idiotic. There's nowhere near enough providers to keep patients out of the hospital and out of the tertiary care system. So I'm for that. And um, I love my two nurse practitioners I work with. They're amazing. Um, and I get to see patients with them every day. And we, uh, we have a business model that, that absolutely supports an extremely high level of care. And we don't have to get to on our knees and beg for payment. We just ask the patient to pay for what we give them. And they happily comply and pay us for the work that we do. And, um, and it works. So that's where, that's where we're going to lead today. I've spoken my rant. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's interesting to come into the medical world after being in, you know, a bunch of other areas of working and seeing, you know, coming into it for my passion, of course, was to work with patients, to hear their story, to be a part of that to be someone that listened and tried to support you, but also the same for the docs that I worked with, you know, to me, everybody needed to be treated the same. And um, what was so frustrating about the entire process was uh, really the logistics, the operations, the business operations, the technology, all of these barriers to something that really is pretty beautiful to be able to do. Um, and yeah, I, I wish that I could do so much more. And I, and I just, I know a lot of my nursing friends, NPs, all of them, PAs, MDs feel the same way. Um, and I think you're right. I don't think that the solution to this really large problem that's been building over many years. So this isn't something that just popped up out of nowhere. This is a mess that has been continuing for quite a while. And now we are reaching a threshold point. Um, yeah, critical mass. We are. And, and I don't, you know, I don't like to bring it, I don't like for it to be alarmist. What I like for it to be is, okay, I acknowledge that. But now we need to talk about action steps. And that really, to me, is courageous leadership. But courageous leadership empowers teams, too, because you can't do it by yourself. It empowers uh, having the courage to use new tools and step outside of comfort zones or maybe the way that you were trained because it isn't working. Um, and so I don't have as much experience in this world with that as you do. So I'm ready to hear really what you have to say about creative yeah. leadership in this world. Well, I, I think that the, the, what's really important is to, to define what courage means and what leadership is just because if it's, if they're going to go together, we need to, need to at least define the term. So courage is not this like magical, you know, I was born with courage. That's just how I am. I'm just this, this man who's gifted with this great courage. It's like, that's really not the case. 
Uh, courage is the willingness to decide in the face of fear that you're going to continue down a path. You're, you say, I, I know there's a fire in that building, but I'm a fireman. I'm going to go into that building and I'm going to grab that little kid or that, that person who's got smoke inhalation. And I know I'm at risk and I'm, I'm afraid that fire could kill me, but I'm not so afraid that I won't do my job. Um, I think there's so many examples of what we consider courage that you think, wow, like a, like a, a soldier, like a special forces guy who charges over the hill. They're not unafraid. They are afraid. If you ask them, they'll tell you, are you afraid? You bet I am, but I still do my job. And I think in medicine, uh, we have been taught to be so risk averse because of medical legal issues, because of uh, deviating from the standard of care. You know, there's just this really narrow path that is considered safe that you can stay on and, and not have any concern. Um, and to a great extent, I think that's a really good thing. But when you see patient care suffering under that standard of care, you have to make a decision. Are you going to run into the burning building or not? Are you going to allow this to continue and just let the whole thing burn down? Or are you going to do something about it? Um, it can be pretty intimidating. It can be, be downright scary and you can become fearful stepping into an area where you're just not familiar. Most doctors are used to t taking insurance as payment. That's what they do. That's what they've always done. It's always worked. And now Medicare cut 5% ish this year and, you know, inflation is 10%. And so it's a 15% pay cut this year. And doctors are supposed to absorb that without any support from the quote unquote government or the insurance industry or whatever that in fact is going the other way. Um, and the building is burning down around them and they need to go in and rescue their patients. And the only way that that's going to happen is to make a different decision, a courageous decision, which is despite my fear, concern, uh, my lack of familiarity with this thing, I'm going to step into a different mode so that I can actually do something. Um, and the, a good example of that is a patient who's being discharged from the hospital today. I think very inappropriately, she's nowhere near ready to be discharged, but she's going to be. And the care that she needs really is hospital level care. And her insurance is probably not going to pay for that outside of the hospital. So we can bounce her back and forth from the hospital until they keep her. Or we can say to her, we'll do that for you. We'll provide you with that level of care and do those intravenous therapies and the other things that we think you need. And you'll need to pay us for that because we don't take insurance. And I think that that is a really good option for the patient to consider but they may not want to, and that's okay with me, but I have the courage to say, we will provide that care. We'll charge you for that care. And in that context, that patient's going to get what they need and we're gonna keep them out of the hospital system, which ultimately is a really good thing for everybody because that level of care is so expensive. And it's just, it's not, I wouldn't call it ridiculous when it's necessary, it's necessary. Um, but lots of that stuff we can do. And because I have critical care experience in the ER for years, um, I'm able to do those things in our office, but we charge for them and we don't beg for permission. <laughs> I don't ask a government entity or the insurance company or anybody for permission. I asked the patient for permission. I said, would you want to do this today? Give you intravenous fluids and get these other things going. And, um, and then they get a chance to do it. So that's the courage part. The leadership part is you have to actually have to be moving for people to follow you. That's what makes you a leader. People, follow you makes you a leader. That's all that it is. If others see your path and say, I want to go down that path, 
that establishes you as a leader. It is not someone who necessarily holds a flag up in the air and says, follow me, or um, I'm the great orator and I will cause you to be motivated to that point where you're going to do it. Instead, if you look behind you and there's people who are following you, that makes you a leader. And I would suggest that most providers, physicians, they are leaders and their patients do follow them. They'll really do a lot of what they say, especially if it's reasonable. If it's reasonable, nearly all of what they say. Um, and that's been my experience. And I'll have occasional, you know, fall off there. But in addition to that, because of our EVA project, we have lots of um, physicians and providers following us down this path very successfully. And because we're successful at this, it makes it available for other providers to actually say, oh, there's a path that's safe that I can actually go down that's going to be productive, fruitful, profitable, helpful, all the good things that you really want as a ph physician, clinician, whatever. And, and so we've established leadership and courageous leadership is available to all of us in healthcare. That means that everyone needs to decide, are you going to compromise and let patient care get worse and worse and worse? Or are you going to take a stand and say, something's got to change. And I don't really care if they do it with EVA technology or if they do it with a concierge model or DPC or whatever they decide to do. But I think the ethics of the situation at this point demand that they lead their patients somewhere better than, you know, well, your insurance will cover this. It's not really what you need. It's the Hobson's choice. You know, it's like, it's the best of the bad options. You know, it's this bad option, that bad option, but this is the better one. So we don't do that. What we do is say the best option that we can find is the one we're going to give you and we'll offer you that. And all the lesser options, you know, if that's their choice, if that's their preference, because, because of payment model and because they, they don't choose to afford or can't afford um, $100 or $500 for treatment, then, you know, there's, there's no resistance on our part at all. There's no... Um, well, that's a bad idea. It's like, that's a good idea for you. If that's the, the decision, that's the equation that comes up. But if there's no one leading to this place of excellent care, the best possible care, and the only way to provide it now, in my opinion, is to take cash. If you do it under the insurance model, the administrative burdens are too great, the payment restrictions are too great, and you can't do it. So courageous leadership is proceeding in the face of fear with people following you. And that's what we're doing at EVA. Ta-da. So there's my definition for you. What do you think? <laughs> I think, you know, it brings up a couple of things, some hard questions that I know people are asking out there, which is if we move towards this model, and we've talked about this before in last season's podcast, if we move towards this model, then we are abandoning a lot of people. And, you know, from my perspective, you can, when when you have the freedom to use a tool, a technological tool to design your business specific to the, the clients or the patients you wanna see, whether it's economic status or not, right? Um, you have the ability to do exactly what it is your goal is. So I think people misunderstand and think that cash model means one thing, but really what it means is freedom to do a lot of different things. And it doesn't mean you, you don't have to, you still have to be within your scope of practice and not do terrible things, right? You still have to be an excellent provider, even more so because you're more accountable. 
But I think when you when you talk about cash and when you talk about the courage to do it, part of that courage and part of that leadership is recognizing or facing with yourself, are you good at business? And or do you need somebody to, do you need to hire somebody to help you do this? Is your primary area of success being the provider? Okay, awesome. You know who you want to see, you know what you want your business style to look like. Are you good at doing the business part? Are you good at organizing all of the tech, all of the operations? Do you know or do you need help? And if you need help there, I think what's part of being courageous is is investing in that, finding somebody, right? Because practice managers or however whatever you want to title them, they're magical, man, and they really are part of that success. But you as a provider and independent practice owner, you have to make that decision and you have to own what your truth is there, I think. I want to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that as you say that, the, I'll tackle the first thing is like, well, you know, you're abandoning people. Um, if you think as an individual clinician or provider that you're going to save every patient at every economic level, you're insane. Uh, if you think that the kind of care that cash patients will actually get is only for the ultra rich, you're also insane because DPC practices are charging 40 or $50 a month for complete access to primary care, cognitive services. Like that is as cheap as I can even imagine. I mean, yeah. that's dinner out for two at a cheap restaurant right? and, or, or five cups of coffee. I mean, it's cheap, cheap, cheap. And there are people who they don't have any money at all and they're poverty stricken. Um, and we can't solve all those problems all at once. But if we don't do a really good job of developing a model that's cost effective where people will actually pay their cash, they actually make the decision. They say, hmm, I can go down the street and go to the ready med or the urgent care and I can get the same service for more money or go to see Dr. J and get a personal relationship and better service for less money. Well, that's, I guess their choice, but I don't know anybody that's making that choice. That's craziness, but they do it. And that's yeah. their choice. I'm not offering a solution to every problem that there is. I'm not open eight o'clock at night, so they need urgent care. But if they want a doctor patient relationship, that's solid with really good, high quality care, that's relational. I know them. I know their story. Eva helps me extract their story. We have a really good system in place to do that. Then we can do that. Um, but the other, the other elements of that, that's that silly propaganda that, oh, you're abandoning people. It's like, well, you know, every day there are people who I can't serve. And I know that, but I don't choose to serve everybody. That's not my goal. We give away 10 to 20% of our care every day. Lots of it to people who can't afford it. Um, and that's my choice, but I don't have the government impose that choice on me and say to me, well, you're only going to get paid $10 for that or $5 for that um, because I won't accept that. I don't, ex I don't accept the government's right to limit my ability to charge what I think my time is worth and give away what I think is worth, wh what I think my time is worth. And the government won't let you, if you're involved in Medicare and you give your service away and you're a, um, a provider in, under Medicare, it's a violation of Medicare. You have to charge, you have to put it through the insurance and that administrative cost persists. Whatever that cost to submit a bill, $5, $20, $50, you still have to do it, even if you want to give the care away. So the, all of that, 
for, because the other reality too, Dr. J is a lot of this, you know, Medicaid, Medicare is also being privatized. So it's actually being driven by these really large insurance companies anyway. It's meant yeah, to Medicare be- Advantage. Yes. Yeah. And, and what you're looking at is you're looking at administrative people who are sucking up 50% of the medical dollar and providing lots of administrative hoops for providers and patients to jump through in order to get what they need. Right. So that, that's just a, a, that straw man argument of the abandonment. It just kind of fires me up because I know that my job is to take care of the patient in front of me, to take care of like the social fabric. Um, you know, I vote in every election um, and I'm interested in that. And I would love that every doctor could use EVA, including in private um, uh, nonprofit clinics where they're not charging any money at all. And there's enough excess funds and donations and everything else that they can provide excellent care. I don't think that's going to come through a government service. I don't think Medicaid is providing that kind of care. It's not. In fact, I know it's not. And and it doesn't. I mean, yeah, well, and. Medicare Advantage is, is more than 50% now of all Medicare beneficiaries get the Advantage program. And the Advantage program is expensive to Medicare. They're paying more money for that than regular, regular Medicare, right. but it's much, much greater patient care. They're, the patients are much more satisfied with that care. And that's just how that goes. If the patients have the right to buy a higher price policy, Medicare Advantage, um, they're going to do it and they're going to get better care and they're going to be better satisfied than the ones who pay less. That's how economics work. That's how it always works. Right. You def- definitely get what you pay for. And medicine's the same. And the myth that somehow we're going to um, give away medical service and that's going to be the answer, it, that's not how life works in the real world. You don't give stuff away um, without there being a price to pay. I'm personally willing to pay that price every day in this office to give patients care that they need because I choose to give it as a gift, not under compulsion, but out of compassion. And I feel like my duties met in that regard. I also worked ER for 20 years, taking care of everybody who walked through the door. And I think, you know, the Israeli army has 100% conscription. Everybody has to go, you know? So maybe we could do that. But I certainly don't think every doctor suddenly has to take socialized medicine in order to be legitimate as a human being. That's just gross. It's actually slavery, but that's another topic altogether. Yeah, it, it certainly so. is. It, I think it's important to kind of go into the sticky areas and explore that because the idea, I, you know, my attraction to the whole system in general is the freedom behind it, the freedom to create a relationship that's open and transparent with the patient. And for the patient, we're empowering them. They get to make the choice of and communicate what they can and cannot do, whether it's financially, whether it's part of their care plan anything of that. And then we get the ability to adapt to that. That's relation, relational care. And to me, that's how it should be, right? Like that's, that's where we need to, again, go back to the roots, that ancient way, you know, that we continue to talk about. (laughs) But I think it's also really important to remember, you know, coming back to the point of when you're a medical provider, when do you choose if you need to hire like as a leader, when do you choose you need to hire a practice manager or have someone like that? How do you, how do you make that choice and admit it or, you know, own that you're really good at it and be able to do all of it? Well, so my personal experience, so my personal experience is really simple. I, I um, worked in the emergency department and I started this practice 20 some years ago. And um, in the mornings, Tuesdays and Thursday mornings, as I came off my ER shift, I'd go 
into a local chiropractor's office. He let me use it Tuesdays and Thursday mornings because he took those times off and I had no manager. I saw two or three patients and it was easy and they wrote me a check or gave me money or whatever and it worked. But as soon as I got to the point where I was being distracted by the business part away from the patient care part is when I hired somebody. And that person was a very entry level manager. They basically took care of paperwork and filed charts. And, uh, but the administrative part, the practice management part, um, is built into Eva. All of that, all of that stuff is in there. So you don't need to have a super high level practice manager at first, once your practice gets big enough where you have lots of inventory and there's all sorts of things to keep track of that. Um, even though that's included in the EVA package, it just takes a little bit more. It's when you're distracted from your care of patients and then you start to spend more time on the administrative part, which didn't take me long. It was within a year I needed to hire somebody. And then within a few years of that, I hired somebody who was a committed practice manager who was very good at it. Uh, and, and it worked out fine, but it, it's because you're unable to keep up with the work. And I think for most practitioners who are already in practice, who are going to switch over to a, an EVA model or a, private practice model or an independent practice model, they're going to need to bring a practice manager with them because it's a, it's a substantial shift. And I think making onboarding a whole new mindset uh, is, is a lot of work because you take this on, like you said, we're more accountable in a, in a independent cash practice because we have a fiduciary responsibility to the patient as well as the medical one. So I got to look at the patient's resources and they say, well, I got $500 I can spend today. What do you think I should do? Well, given the alternatives to everything else that we could do, let's do these things because you can afford that and um, we'll take care of those problems because I can do that. If it's an insurance model, I don't have any thought about the money. Just You just do what you do and then the patient gets a bill a few weeks later, a month later, and they get hammered with that or blessed with that, which I think is rare. Um, but you know, we definitely can do so much more within the independent practice model uh, with the money that the patient does have to provide them what they need. And a business manager now handles all of that for me. I don't have those discussions with patients at all. I just talk about health stuff, not money stuff. Um, so my practice manager takes care of all of those things, all the quotes and the estimates of care and all that stuff. That's all handled by a practice manager. And taking me out of that loop is a beautiful thing because I'm not, I'm not as detailed with those kinds of things as my practice manager. So um, but it's a really good thing. I think what's really nice, Dr. J, you know, from my personal experience with Eva outside of working in the team of Eva is I noticed that Eva and I've watched with some of our clients now, if you have an entry level practice manager, it really, I, I don't want to say forces, but it really guides them to continue to grow into each next level because Eva is going to ask you to be an organized business. So it's not a practice management system that basically allows you to get away without being organized. It's going to say, in order for you to do this, you need to take care of this, this, and this. So it's really creating efficiency and um, doing it through repetition. I've seen practice managers at the entry level just become exceptional um, and then be able to become creative which to me means you're kind of meeting that mastery level um, and, and it takes your practice to the next level, right? So I think having Eva as a tool, some people you know, come back and say, 
well, really what makes Eva different? And one of the things I like to bring up is Eva kind of teaches you to be efficient. You know, she's your expert virtual assistant and you're giving her all the information for your clinic. And then she's going to say, hey, to you, this is how you need to be efficient. And we have some people that push back and, and don't want to be efficient and kind of want to continue the model that they're in um, for whatever reason. But those that sort of gently move that way, I mean, they do take the business to the next level, which allows the patient care to go to the next level, which allows providers to continue to go to training and you really just continue to expand quality. I mean, that's what I see. Well, yeah. So, and all those things about money and expenses and everything, when you have a system like Eva, um, you, you actually replace an employee or two because Eva handles so much of the grunt repetitive work. So the medical assistant typically would go in a room and do a history. Eva does that and does it better than any medical assistant I've ever worked with and also gives you interpretation of the data. Awesome. Eva also takes care of all your inventory. Eva also takes care of all your invoicing. Eva also does all those things. So your practice manager really is dealing with the interpersonal relationship with the patient. So they're really dealing with their concerns, their, their financial uh, capability, those things, but not dealing with a whole lot of number crunching or a whole lot of uh, invoice work. The patient has access to all that because it's open notes. They have their invoices all on a list. They don't have to get the office to print them. They have them themselves. They can print them themselves. All of the work that you see an MA do, all the work that you see uh, a, a, a practice management person who does invoicing and stuff, that's all handled by Eva. That's all done at, at no charge. It's just part of the package. And um, because of that, the efficiency is much higher. And so instead, the time that's spent in the practice is relating to the patient, actually spending time face-to-face not duck down behind a screen, crunching some numbers and trying to figure out is, is there a prior authorization or we don't we deal with any of that stuff. Are we we don't deal with any of that administrative headache. Yeah. So, so it's, it's great. And so in terms of courageous leadership, um, we've created a model that um, I think it's, it's, it's established. It's that like, we call it the ancient path. You know, you have a community resource for care and in ancient communities, it was the medicine man or the priest at the temple or the shaman or, and there was a local person when there was a problem, you go to them and you'd have a relationship with that person and the community depended on that person. Now that's been distributed out in a way that there's just kind of a system. So there's that interpersonal part has been removed, but the ancient path and the one that has really been effective in culture and maintaining cohesion and, and community and health and all of that has to do with individuals taking care of individuals and having a respectful interaction where the individual says, I will come to the shaman and I'll bring a chicken <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the interaction. And there will be some kind of, you know, some kind of consideration for the work. And it's not a third party that's saying, you know, you don't get a chicken, you get a wing and that's yeah. what you get. There's no doorman. I mean, yeah, right. So anyway, I, I'm I'm excited that that we could probably have, you know, thousands and thousands of providers coming down the ancient path saying, I do want relationships with the people that I work with. I am willing to take the risk of stepping outside of the established insurance model and the slings and arrows that will come from people who say, Well, you're greedy and what do you what about the people you'll abandon? It's like, what about the uh, other ninety-seven percent who I care for? I can't take care of everybody. I'm not kidding myself about that. And I'm not afraid 
of somebody saying, you know, you're not being, uh, you're not being fair, or you're, you're not being kind. It's like, well, that's not true. That's just, you know, that's, it's just a complete propaganda move. And I believe that we have a, um, a model that's successful and anyone who wants to follow us, um, they'll have to have some courage themselves. It'll, it takes some courage to step out of the established way. But if you don't step out of the way, you're going to get hit by the oncoming train because it's coming and you, you won't be able to maintain an independent practice in the insurance model within a year or two. It's just not going to be available. So look at the um, cover of the most recent medical economics. I mean, I know it's beautiful. It's, it's what we talked with them about, you know, it's, it's really, it's not changing. You know, you do have to run your business and pay for your supplies and pay for your office and pay for your, you know, like you have a lot of things that you have to pay for just to operate. And if you aren't getting reimbursed because they are cutting reimbursement rates, that yep. means you are cutting time with patients and you're trying to increase your patient load in order to compensate for that. So you're seeing way more patients not giving quality care so that you can basically pay for your gloves and your four by fours and your, <laughs> you know, like and, what you need to operate. Well, and, and Eva, we, we, we've talked about it being a time machine because Eva, Eva really produces time, extra time. And yeah. physicians work for me with a lot of experience, 30 or 40 years, I can do a really good history in about an hour. With Eva, it takes somewhere between five minutes and seven minutes. Uh, I mean, comprehensive, every system in detail, interpreted and documented instead of an hour. Um, with that in mind, you're just creating such an economy of scale and time saving. And the average doctor currently in an insurance driven system to meet all the criteria of meaningful use and all the other uh, criteria would have to spend 27 and a half hours every day to comply. So everybody's out of compliance. Nobody's keeping up. Their pay is going down. It's not a sustainable situation. So I am going to suggest that anybody who's in earshot share this with people who really want to have the opportunity to do the ancient way of relating to people, caring for them, healing them, and being a resource in their community and in the world for, for good, you know, to really do something they're not conflicted about every day. They feel like they're doing a great job. They feel they're being adequately paid and they're going to be able to stay in business. They'll be able to sustain that so that 20 or 30 years from now, when somebody says, who's the healer in town? Well, it's Aaron or Dr. J it's Eva, you know, whatever. And, um, and we're, we're in that business and I'm excited about it. So. That's my, that's my piece. Well, thanks for, you know, bringing on this topic, courageous leadership, what it means and, you know, kind of diving into the stickier areas of it. I know there's a lot of fear and judgment and, you know, um, perspective mm -hmm. around that. And, you know, I just invite people to be open-minded and really evaluate if what you're doing day to day is working for you and you're finding success with your patients. Great. If it's not, and you're looking for an alternative way to sort of do what you want to do, there are other options out there. You know, there is, there is some freedom and you can be creative again. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. I don't want people to feel stuck. Like it is exhausting and frustrating. And my friends that are still working at the hospital and are exhausted and still don't believe me that there's another way to do it. I'm going to just keep being there for them, you know, even if it's just a listening ear. Um, 
but there is, there's other ways to do it and to do it really, really well. Um, and I hope that people explore that. Yeah. Well, we'll keep beating the drum. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, thanks for your okay. time today, Dr. J. It was a great one. Yes. Yes, ma'am. I'll talk to you later. Sounds good. Well, I have to say that's one of my favorite episodes of this season um, because it's a topic that I think, you know, we really need to dive deeper into and think about as a collective in healthcare. Who are our courageous leaders? Where do we want to go? How do we want to move forward? What are the tools we're going to use? And how are we going to work together, right, to accomplish this primary goal, which is better patient care, uh, better outcomes for patients, and their survival of independent practices and really excellent um, independent doctors. Because if you want to do it on your own, if you want to go out there and create that unique, uh, personalized relationship with patients, you should be able to do that. And if there are patients that are interested in that kind of relationship, they should be able to find it. All right, that's it for me today. Thanks so much again for joining us. And I hope you take the rest of your day to be a courageous leader. See you on the next episode.